ladies, this is Jessica Iterole. And I'm Barbara Saunders Livingston. And we want to welcome you to the Seeking Holy Podcast. A podcast for women seeking Christ in a challenging world. As you listen, we hope you'll be encouraged to open God's Word to seek Him and strengthen your abiding relationship with Christ. Whether you find yourself with plenty of time or not enough time, pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab your Bible, and join us for Seeking Holy. Welcome, ladies, to our second episode of the Seeking Holy podcast. This week's series is titled Discovering Our Identity in Christ, Barbara's Testimony of Restoration. We're so excited to kick off this series, so we'll get right in. Before we get started, we want to give a subject matter warning. Some of the contents in this episode may not be suitable for children. So if you have little ears nearby, you may want to put in your headphones or wait until you can listen alone. So Barbara, I know that you have prayerfully been working diligently to thread several topics within your testimony, and we're just so excited that the time has finally come to get to hear you. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, so this episode, um, I'm excited to share how uh, the gospel literally has transformed my life, including and especially um, in important areas like my identity, my sense of significance, um, how I viewed my value and worth in life, and where I get my security and stability. Um, and so, you know, testimony, which doesn't have to be framed like this, but how I've always tried to break it down into three parts. What my life was like before Christ, how I came to know Christ, and what my life um, is like today, and as a result of trusting and following Him and being born again. And so early in my walk with Jesus, when I first really entered the church body, I was handed this book, and it's called The Search for Significance. Um, And the fact that that book sold over 2 million copies, I believe, is indicative uh, to the value placed really on one's sense of significance in life, you know, and the longing for the search for this significance. Um, And we would all you know, like there to be some sort of meaning to our lives, I think. Um, And my salvation in Christ finally put an end really to this search for the universal type of significance. Um, Today, I seek and look to Him, the Lord, the one who literally became what gives my life significance and its meaning. Um, if there is any value or worth or purpose to my life, I assure you, it is only because of Jesus and His saving, sanctifying work in my life. I continue to search for the unseen one who sought me, and he found me first uh, when I was at my worst. Uh, when we seek Christ, all those valuable, necessary things are really, you know, really are found in Him. And so, I'm going to share my story with these three perspectives in mind and how and where uh, my search for significance and identity and worth and value and security and stability, how those changed so dramatically before and then after my salvation. 
when speaking about things like this, you know, significance, identity, worth, and so forth, and there's two very different and opposing perspectives, uh, which I have held and lived. Uh, one could say these perspectives are the difference between you know, night and day and darkness and light. And so there was a time in my life when, you know, I didn't sense my life had any worth. I certainly couldn't see any value in it. I didn't feel I had any significance, really. In fact, I didn't feel life had any meaning at all other than general misery. And then you die. You know, I was suicidal, mostly uh, from my preteen years to age 24, which is the age of my salvation. And so these deeply felt beliefs really influenced me to make a lot of detrimental decisions. And this general pervading sense of self-abasement, I believe, came from most of my early life feeling abandoned and rejected and you know, really unloved. I was put into uh, foster homes um, and then adopted at the age of three. Mine was considered a closed adoption, so I never really understood why I was adopted. I just figured the very people who brought me into this world who were supposed to love me and care for me and protect me. I just figured they didn't want me. It wasn't until years later that I learned um, the truth about my circumstances surrounding my adoption, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but um, it did include some severe abuse and neglect. But it wasn't until those specifics were revealed that I realized, you know, I wasn't as much abandoned as I was rescued by a loving, gracious Heavenly Father who knew me in my mother's womb and already had a plan to ransom and restore me and my life. And this is why I titled my book, Rescued, Ransomed, Restored, From Damaged to Delivered. Um, but it would be many years later uh, before I would learn truth like this. Um, so because of uh, the sense of rejection that I carried and um, I had a very difficult time bonding um, with my adopted parents and family, um, and really anyone for that matter. Uh, I learned to function at a somewhat normal level, but there was always this deep underlying you know, grief, I guess, pain and sadness. Um, the sense of abandonment, which I carried, plus, you know, adding some rebellion, which eventually entered my life when... Um, I was beginning to form a more independent sort of individual identity, um, which typically, you know, is very normal, um, but it really took a toll on me. Um, I didn't like the feelings which were accompanied by being adopted and realizing, you know, at some level, something had to have happened, right, to cause me to not be with my biological parents. The rebellion and the rejection, these two spirits basically um, took over my life. Uh, the reality of all that hit me and I took um, a lot of pills out of the medicine cabinet and uh, not really wanting to die at this point, but desperately wanting something to change. And this decision um, began my institutionalization over a period of the next almost two years I was in a series of five mental institutions, and when one place said they can no longer help me, they would just send me to another place, to another place, to another place, basically giving me this belief um, and the impression, and eventually the identity that I took on, that there was something really wrong with me um, that wasn't necessarily wrong, you know, with everyone else. 
And so much, it would be much, much later that I would learn, you know, my true diagnosis. Um, and it's that of everyone that's ever lived, that's alive now, that will ever live. And the Bible calls it sin, you know, in Romans 3.23, um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I didn't, I was no ways near knowing that truth then. In the institutions, I went through a lot. My parents ended up putting me back into state's custody, and I went before a judge once a month who declared me INT, which is called In Need of Treatment, Title 19, in the state of Oklahoma. And while I was in institutions, I was exposed to many things, and much happened. But let me just suffice it to say that I went in very depressed, and I came out very, very angry. So while I was in the institutions, you know, I would become so angry from feeling unloved and abandoned that I would go into these fits of rage, um, be tackled down and held down. And they'd call uh, what they called a code green and they'd announce it through the intercoms of the institution. And these grown men would come in and wrestle me down to the floor and carry me off to seclusion. And they would strap me down and what they called a five point restraint. And they would leave me there I was eventually, though, discharged back to uh, my adopted parents and family who had moved from one part of the city to another. And so it was kind of like moving to a whole new place after being institutionalized. Not long after my discharge, uh, my father passed away from a heart attack. And in my mother's grief, she had blamed us for for his death, saying it was all the stress that I had caused the family, all that I had put them through, and showed me the door and told me that I would never live there again. After you've been locked up that long, they don't just let you go. They'll assign you an outpatient therapist. And I had seen her on occasion. And I literally just walked across the street and I called her. And she agreed to let me live with her. In order to get into high school, a public high school, mind you, I'd been going to school in an institution, so you had to have a place of residence. So she got me into high school. And I began hanging out with, they call it the wrong crowd, I guess. Um, I hang out with people who believed about themselves like I believed about myself. I began smoking pot and dropping acid, otherwise known as LSD. Um, and I wore out my welcome very quickly there. And I came home one afternoon and all my things were on the porch. So I moved in with my 21-year-old boyfriend at the time who I'd met, him and his mother. I remember coming out while I was living there that um, her boyfriend wasn't, his mother's boyfriend wasn't really her boyfriend, but it was her girlfriend. And so I had never been you know, exposed to homosexuality. I remember calling my mom and telling her what was going on. And she said, no, you can't come back home. And so I remember uh, staying there about a year and a half. I ended up getting pregnant. We continued to do drugs and drink. And I thought in my reasoning at the time that because I was adopted and going through all that I was, and because it was legal and I was being encouraged to make the decision because of the situation that I was in, I decided the best thing for me to do was to have an abortion. Mind you, I didn't know that God knew us in our mother's womb and that he had a plan for us before the foundation of the world, that every hair on our head is numbered. I didn't know any of that. I just did what I thought was best at the time to survive. What little relationship I had with my boyfriend dwindled to nothing after I told him. I ended up checking myself into a drug rehab in downtown Oklahoma City after he went to prison for burglary. I kind of saw that as my way out of a desperate and scary situation. It was an adult facility, but they went ahead and let me in to no avail. I stayed there about four months and I left before I finished that program. And as I look back on 
all these attempts to get clean. And, you know, I didn't want my life to be the way it was. I didn't want to be in the situation. But I ultimately just didn't have any power within myself to change my life. And so all these attempts to change my life failed. You know, now I know without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you might want a lot of things, but you ultimately just have no power to do that. And so that's what I was. I left there without finishing that program. I remembered an old connection of mine who sold cocaine. So I called him up. He agreed to let me live with him and his mother, which you know, presents this cycle now. From the time I woke up to the time I passed out, at this point in my life, I was always high or drinking. And I did drugs to relieve the pain of my circumstances and my poor choices. And all it did was create more and more pain and difficult circumstances. I didn't stay there very long before his mother said, you have to go. She has to leave, but not without giving me a job opportunity. Uh, She told me to go meet with two men in the same apartment complex and that they would give me a job. Seeing as I had no other options, or so I always thought, I agreed. So I went up to the apartment number that she gave me and knocked on the door, and an older gentleman answered the door. And I walked in to the job interview, and they placed a deck of cards in front of me and told me that I was going to be dealing cards for the American Legion, which was not what I was going to be doing. So I shuffled, and they said, okay. Meet us, go get cleaned up, meet us tonight, and we'll take you out and tell you the rest of the job description. You know, I'm still pretty naive up to that point about what was going to happen, but they picked me up. We went to dinner. We pulled up to a hotel um, afterward, and the elder of the two men led me up into the hotel room. He, We got into the room. He began to show me pads of paper of numbers and names, and I turned around in the room and looked at him, and his demeanor um, immediately changed. He got very stern and very straight um, and told me to strip. And so there I was. I was basically terrified um, and I went into survival mode, which is something that I had learned previously way before then. So there I was, you know, at 17 years old, basically turning my first trick, so they say, for, you know, a place to live, for food, for clothes, for eventually for drugs. We'll be back after this brief message. Hey, this is Barbara. You know, we all have a story. No two are the same. A day does not go by when I don't think of those who are lost in the darkness, because I was one of them. This is my story, a story of childhood abuse and abandonment, confinement and addiction, sexual slavery and incarceration, which exposed me ultimately to the one thing, or should I say the one who could save me. I'm a registered nurse, a wife, a mother, a gram, and a saved sinner who has been tragically damaged, yet wonderfully delivered. Join me as I share my journey from lost to found, darkness to light, in the pages of my book, Rescued, Ransomed, Restored, available on Amazon or on our website, avaloves.us. People have asked me, and I mean, more importantly, I've asked myself, you know, why didn't I run, scream, walk out, pick up the phone, call someone, whatever. I mean, today I can better understand this and, you know, without a foundation. And even if I had possessed, you know, a sense of value, um, self-worth or respect for myself, I guess, there, there was no one to call at that point and there was nowhere to go. There was a new depth of shame uh, that I endured to live in. 
and maintain um, in this environment with these two men. And it's not something that I think about often anymore, much less try and describe a whole lot. But I was basically just used for their sexual pleasure. And it was also um, a sense of, of control. These two men were gamblers. They were bookies. They would make large amounts of money on the football. They had many betters. Um, they would go to Las Vegas and they would take me with them. But most of the time, they would take me to the dope house in Southside, Oklahoma City and leave me there. And this is where I began to uh, shoot up heroin. I began mainlighting heroin, meth, crank, coke, whatever I could get my hands on, Dilaudid, uh, morphine. Because by this point in my life, and to quiet the, the shame of that life, I really did just want to die. And the sooner I could accomplish that in the least painful way, I could accomplish that, the better is kind of how I saw it. You know, and since we're addressing this overall theme and part of where we find our security and stability, and not that I knew this at the time, you know, but there was this an odd sense of, I guess, eventually uh, security and stability even through these two men, you know, who basically bought me um, off the streets and assumed this ownership of me. And, and even though I was basically ashamed and fearful and terrified of them and the whole entire situation, I still had a sense of, you know, I wasn't on the street and I had a place to sleep and I had things to eat and I had clothes to wear. And so there was still this sense, however degrading it was, of security, you know, and stability that I didn't have before. And so, you know, in this environment, um, I was raped, ripped off, and I was sharing needles with anyone and everyone. I really didn't care at this point, like I said. And But before I accomplished uh, my goal, I got very, very sick to where I couldn't even stand up. And so the younger of the two men, you know, one of these men, they were 56 and 43 years old, and the younger of the two took me to... Um, Griffin Memorial Hospital in Norman because I was very sick and this is where they diagnosed me with liver disease and they told me that I was in a chronic state in my liver that I already had a 70-year-old liver and if I did not quit doing drugs I was going to be dead by the time I was 30. Well 30 seemed like a long ways off from I think I was 18. I remember they kind of helped me to detox and kind of nurse me back to a healthy state. I remember calling my mom and telling her the diagnosis and she said, no, you can't come back here. You know, my mom was being taught about this thing called tough love, and she was very good at that. So um, the younger of the two men agreed to take me two and a half hours away from the city. At that point, the gambling money had run out and they had gotten into some conflict, to, uh, the two men. And so he moved me out to where, kind of northwest Oklahoma, where I am now. You know, he kept asking me to marry him. Um, again, he was 24 years older than me. I just kept blowing that off, but I ended up getting pregnant again. And not that I'd done anything right, as I've already shared up to this point, but having this baby seemed like a good place to maybe start. And so we got married and they told us we were going to have a, a boy and um, he'd wanted a boy and we'd bought all, all boys things. I mean, some, some of you may really relate to this, but uh, when we had a little girl, you know, he um, was standoffish, would have much to do with her at first. And so that rejection that I had experienced all my life, I was now watching kind of my daughter go through and I was continuing to go through and I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, the best way I knew how to deal with anything in life was to do drugs. And so I ventured 10 miles from there in Woodward, Oklahoma, and um, I began to shoot up methamphetamine, which is commonly known as crank. And um, there's a whole lot more detail in my book about 
you know, what happened during this time period. I began to be very, very afraid of their father and my addiction, plus the fear. I began getting arrested over and over. And so sometimes during the arrest, there would be just questions, questioning, interrogation. It would be more about him, and I would find out about his past and who he really was. Um, And it, you know, just increased the fear in me that I needed to get away from him with my children. But I I had this addiction as well. So I had racked up multiple felony charges, um, and I would no sooner get out on one charge before I would be arrested for something else. And suicidal thoughts continued to consume my mind. No sooner would I get out on one charge before I would be, you know, arrested for something different. You know, I had lost everything that had meant anything to me. I had had another daughter by that time, um, and I had lost temporary custody of both my girls. Their father had filed for divorce, and the last time I had been before the judge, he said, you know, young lady, if you're convicted on all these counts, you're looking at about 60 years in the state penitentiary. You know, and that hit me very hard. That was a very sobering moment. Suicidal thoughts continued to consume my mind. I would literally just beat my head against the cell door in the jail there until it would bruise and bleed because I was so frustrated. I didn't want my life to be in that condition, you know. I didn't want to keep making these detrimental choices and going around this cycle But I just didn't know how to change. And I didn't have the power, like I said before, to stop. And this is where I picked up a little, the little Bible that was placed in my cell. And I know now to be, you know, the Gideon Bible. And I began reading in Psalms and it talked a lot about your enemies, you know, and I had acquired quite a few of those by then and namely myself. But so I began to kind of relate with the word of God. It it spoke to me right away. And there were also two ladies that would come by my cell once a week faithfully. I remember them kneeling down by my bean hole, you know, where they give you your food in and out. And, you know, we called them the church ladies. And my question for them this particular day was, you know, do you have to go through this hell on this earth? And when you die, you can go to heaven. See, I just thought if I could die, if I could overdose, someone take me out, that it would all be over, that I could go to heaven. And um, one of them answered, no, you can ask Jesus Christ to come into your life right now and know joy and peace. And that's something that I had never really known before, you know, not really. And so, you know, I thank God today that he kept me alive because if I had died in my sin, you know, never having entered into a relationship with Christ, you know, I would not have gone to heaven. I would have entered into a very real place called hell, not just the living hell that I was experiencing then, but it would be eternal and real and that there would be no chance, you know, of hope and no more chance at healing. And so, you know, they went on down to the next cell, not really knowing the difference that they made in my life until later. But that's exactly what I did. Uh, Desperate, I leaned against the top bunk in the jail and I bowed my head and I prayed, you know, God, I cannot do this anymore. But if you can, Jesus, then do it. You know, come into my life and be my Lord. And when I come up from that prayer, I knew. I mean, my life literally... Uh, has never been the same since that prayer, since that day. And so it was through the Word of God and what I know now to be the Spirit of God, drawing me and convicting me of my sin and convincing me. And the two ladies of God leading me 
in my soul witnessing to me. Um, you know, I experienced salvation and I was forever transformed. It's been a process to get where I am today, but this is where it started. You know, at my salvation, leaning against that still hardness of that bunk with the miserable thin mattress. See, we call him and he reveals himself as Savior for a reason. At my lowest place, uh, Jesus found me and he reached me in the pit of my circumstances and my consequences. And his love and kindness brought me to genuine repentance and confession, which led to my salvation. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Join us tomorrow when Barbara continues her story in Restored, Life After Salvation, Significance, Identity, Value, Worth, Security, and Stability. See you then. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please feel free to rate and review our podcast and share it with all your friends. Thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you're leaving with a deepening fascination to fellowship with the one who has created you for his purpose and desires to show you more of his goodness every day. 